Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome Adrian Gottschalk, CEO of Foghorn Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Adrian. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So Adrian, to kick us off, please walk us through the arc of your career, how you got interested in biotech and what you were doing prior to becoming CEO of Foghorn. Sure. So I'll start a little bit in the distant past. Actually, immigrant to the United States. I came here with my family, so my mom, dad, and two brothers in the mid-80s. Came to Dallas, Texas, where my dad was on faculty at UT Southwestern. So grew up around a lot of physicians and science and medicine. Was fortunate enough way back when in high school to actually be in the lab of Brown Goldstein there at UT Southwestern and doing all sorts of stuff. These back then that these days are probably automated and take you a split second to do in terms of progress of science. Undergrad in biochemistry way back when at Texas A&M University and ironically did not go straight into life sciences. I actually ended up, as most people do in Texas, in oil and gas. Did IT consulting of all things as I was trying to decide if I really wanted to go to med school and do what you know my dad was doing and a lot of family friends were doing. In short, I ended up coming up to Boston for grad school in 2001, went to the MIT Sloan School and I was really privileged to be part of a joint degree program that had just started this biomedical enterprise program, which was with the Harvard MIT Health Science Center, the MIT Sloan School, so a smattering of medical courses at Harvard Medical School, some clinical rotations, graduate work, which ended up being with FDA. And it was during that time that it was really clear to me I wanted to be in biotech. I wanted to be doing something meaningful and impactful. I remember actually writing my essays for business school and saying I wanted to be a leader in the life sciences. It was about that simple and probably ambitious. And I had the privilege of being a summer MBA intern in 2002 at Biogen. Actually, Bill Anderson was the vice president of planning, and he took a chance on me. Maybe it was because I was a fellow Texan and ended up at Biogen you know, too, and then went back full-time in 2004 and was there until April of 2017 before I came to Falkhorn. And, you know, phenomenal set of experiences across a range of roles and, and geographies and loved my time at that company. And I'm um, sure we can talk a bit more about that. And then came to Foghorn, as I joke, a first-time CEO, but almost six years in, so maybe no longer so much first time. So that's a bit of the background and my passion has always been the intersection of science, the medicine, the business. I always equate it to three-dimensional chess. It's really, really hard, but the impact that we have when we're actually able to help people and bring medicines to people suffering with disease, and importantly, their families too, that's what I see as my life's mission. I love the leadership aspect of it, and I love the impact that we get to have, not only for people with disease, but actually for the people that we work with as well. My end game here is just to leave I hope leave a lot of people better off because they've interacted with me in whatever capacity. And going back to your days at Biogen, talk to us a little bit about what the company was like at that point when you joined and then the evolution of the company during your tenure there. Yeah, so I actually remember this was in 2002 and I had started as an MBA summer intern and it was the actually the FDA hearing for Amavi, which was a drug 
that Biogen had developed for psoriasis initially. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little off on the math, but maybe a couple thousand people company. They'd launched Abinex and MS in the late 90s. And it felt really entrepreneurial. And I remember having conversations about, as was, one was want to as an MBA, saying, oh, well, what's your development program for MBA students and how do you do it? And I remember the conversation with one person said, well, this is more of the choose your own adventure. You can come in and you can go in different places and you can work hard and there's lots of different exposure. And interestingly, that was true for my whole career there. I remember actually engaging with Jim Mullen as a summer intern. Jim was the then CEO. That summer was just a phenomenal experience. And it was so great that when it was time to look for a full-time job after grad school, I went back. And when I went back to Biogen, it was actually Biogen IDEC. Biogen had merged with IDEC, which was obviously in San Diego on the West Coast. And the company basically doubled in size, doubled in revenue. IDEC had all the oncology assets, rituximab. Most notably, Biogen was doing a tremendous amount in immunology, as well as obviously neurology. And it was, frankly, a ride of a lifetime to see the company go from a few thousand people, Abinex and Rituximab, eventually to Tysabri. I remember being there when Tysabri was approved, and unfortunately, when it was withdrawn temporarily from the market due to PML. I remember being in the boardroom as we got notice of the approval and obviously the unfortunate consequences down the road. And seeing that company grow and being a part of it through Tecvidera and hemophilia products and even some of the work I did very early on in the Alzheimer's aspect before I left the company was, was meaningful. And I think the North Star there was, during my tenure, was always the focus on the patient and the impact that we were doing. And doing really high quality science and medicine, it always resonated with me. So I had an unbelievable experience. And the things I enjoyed most actually were traveling around the world. I had several roles where I had the opportunity to go visit various affiliates or countries. Mm -hmm. And at one point was running aspects of operations outside the United States and Europe. So I spent a lot of time on an airplane and a lot of time not in the US, but it was unbelievable to see the impact that one could have in diseases and the ability to grow a biotech and the lessons and the learning and the leadership that comes with it. You know, I know we all have that aspiration as we're building companies. It's really hard to do. It's non-trivial. You do have to be a little lucky along the way. And I think the biggest learning I had is there's no one single person that ever does anything. There's certainly brilliant scientists and physicians and business people, but this is the ultimate team sport. And, uh, you have to have a dose of healthy optimism at the same time, some skepticism. So mm. it's a br brilliant time to buy it. Great. And so now if we go back about six years as you were thinking about becoming CEO of Foghorn. Talk to us about what you were looking for at that time. And then perhaps the first couple of months being in that seat, what were some of the perhaps surprises or non-obvious learnings that you had along the way? Sure. So... For me, any role I've ever taken, and, and I think about my career in this way as well, is who are the people with whom you're going to be working and are you going to be doing something that's really meaningful and impactful? And we're really fortunate here in the Boston Cambridge area. There's a tremendous amount of life sciences and biotechs and lots of different things one can go do. So as I was thinking about my next step on the journey, it really was about where are there some really phenomenal people and where is there a an opportunity to really have a big impact and do something that is bold, different, and will be an outsized difference maker for patients and families. And I had looked at a number of different companies, 
and ultimately had connected with our academic founder, Sigal Kadosh. We actually met at Area 4, which is the pizza place actually down in our building, pizza coffee shop. And I think we hit it off right away. And I got introduced to her by Doug Cole, who's one of the managing partners at Flagship. I'd actually come to Flagship through a contemporary colleague of mine whilst I was at HST program there, David Berry, who was a partner also at Flagship. And you he's know, been on this podcast before too. Yeah. No, so I, you know, thanks to David, I probably wouldn't have been connected with Flagship. And thanks to Doug, I wouldn't have been connected to Seagal. And thanks to Seagal, I probably wouldn't be here either. So I was looking for that high impact. I remember reading a paper that Seagal had published as a 2013 paper. She and the other academic founder, Jay Crafty, were the two sole, two authors on the paper. And it was describing this biology that I'm sure we'll talk about and the impact of this one disease. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, this is really true. And it plays out in other cancer and other diseases. This is going to be massive. And so I had the impact. The board at the time, the late Jose Baselga was on the board, in addition to some of the other folks. And I just remember thinking, these are people who can go do anything they want to do. And they're spending their time on this. And they're great human beings. This seems like an area where I'm going to take a chance. And I remember the company at that time was about 10 or 12 people. So I wanted to go early. I wanted to build something. I wanted to be able to create a company with a culture and a vision that was consistent with how I believe good leadership operates. And this was a prime opportunity. I will say to your question of what was surprising, I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, do you have drugs? Where are we? And I remember chatting with Paul Clancy, who was the former CFO at Biogen, Paul said, wow, you're going to go really early. Do they have drugs? I said, you know, not really. This is really early. He goes, wow, that's really early. And I have to tell you, I have no regrets at all. The things I think that were unanticipated, if you will, I like to think I'm relatively facile with science and business, but I think you come into a biotech startup and the first thing you start working on is how do you communicate the story? And there was a funny session where the board said, well, you didn't come in and tell us a story about how are you going to articulate the science. And I think it was four or five board members at the time. And I'd written out this nine minute spiel and I went in and I said, I try to do this as I was trying to explain it to my mom. And my mom is brilliant and she's not a scientist, but a very smart lady. And I got through it and Jose Baselga says, is your mom a biochemist? And I said, okay, clearly too scientific. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges and surprises, and it continues to be. It's hard to communicate succinctly and clearly what can be really interesting novel science and get people to understand it and resonate it. So that was sort of maybe harder, more unexpected than I thought. I think the other thing I would say is the amount of time as a CEO, I'm very much in passion about the people and the leadership and what we do internally. And I think unlike my positions at Biogen, the CEO role is really the intersection of the external and the internal. And there's a lot of times where you're actually indexing more on the external versus the internal. And so just adjusting to that cadence, and that obviously goes up and down and evolves as the company grows. So those are two things that maybe were a little more surprising and challenging as I started off in the new role. Great for sharing that, Adrian. I'm curious, as you went from being a team of 10 to a team now of north of 100, how did you think about the evolution of your own role and how you knew when you needed to pull back from certain things that you were involved in when it was 10 versus where you are now? That is a terrific and hard question. And I've drawn this graph that I routinely show the company and I try and 
challenge myself on this, at least semi-annual, if not quarterly basis. And it was sort of just a simple XY graph. And for the math fans who may be listening, you know, it's a stepwise discontinuity, right? That's where, but the line jumps up. There's no connection. It's sort of an open circle, empty circle. And I'd always drawn this chart from the early days for the company where I'd say, you know, we are on an incredible growth trajectory. We're going to hit certain milestones as an example for, and don't ask me why this is, but there's something really different when you hit about 20, 25 people. And there's something also really different when you get about 50 people and also 100. And then obviously private to public and preclinical only to clinical and obviously at some point commercial. And so not that I've gotten it right, but I try to think both for the company and for myself as to at each step where we feel like we're at this stepwise discontinuity or inflection point in the company, it's incumbent upon certainly me as a CEO, but I actually encourage my leadership team and everyone to say, well, hold on a second. What is it that we've been doing that has been great, but we just can't do that way anymore. It just doesn't scale. It doesn't operate. And you know, I'll give you an example. I, I used to write a welcome card, personal welcome to everyone who joined. And I try to do that to every individual who joined the company. That worked great until about 50, 60 people. And then you start hiring people and a few people every week. And then you're doing investor stuff. And then I was like, well, I'll just try and send an email and I'll meet with everyone for 10 minutes. And, and then your time gets sucked away. And so, you know, now we're at that scale where it's really important to me to know everyone as much as I can in the company, but we do small group meetings where I get to meet with it. So there's many other examples I can give you, but I think you've got to really think hard about where do you spend your time? How are you creating value for the company? Where do you have to adjust? And there's been books written on this, so that, you know, what got you here won't get you there. I think it's that mentality you always have to have as you're building the business because it is a constant evolution and certainly at the speed at which we're operating in biotech, it is exceptionally dynamic. And I think if you hold on to the way you have done it and never challenge yourself to do it differently or evolve, it's not going to be a recipe for success. So it's not easy. It's very hard to do. Yeah. Great book written by Marshall Goldsmith, Marshall Goldsmith by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. book. Fantastic yeah. book. Great. So to set the stage for the work that you're now pursuing at Foghorn, if you could educate us on a couple of things, one would be overall the landscape for therapeutic options in oncology, and then also around what's changed with our ability to modulate, let's say, gene expression. Sure. So I think most people who are listening in think about oncology or would certainly recognize the fun, which is, you know, it's really started off with chemotherapeutics. And it was a race between how fast can you kill the cancer and ensure you're not actually killing the person. So, you know, relatively toxic. And unfortunately, by the way, still a really critical part of cancer therapies in many cases, because there are great alternatives. So thankfully we have them, but they really are toxic. And, you know, I saw this actually for my late father, who fortunately was diagnosed with cancer and had to get chemotherapy given the tumor type yet. So we have the untargeted cancer chemotherapeutics. We sort of got into the realm, as you'll remember, monoclonal antibodies. That was in the late 1990s. I was privileged enough to work post the biogenetic merger on rituximab, which was partnered with Genentech and Roche, one of the first monoclonal antibodies in cancer, where the fabled law goes, uh, the fabled war is that people say, you know, mark my words, monoclonal antibodies aren't going to work in cancer. And lo and behold, one of the most important breakthroughs I think that has been made, and kudos to the teams at Tux, kudos to the teams at IDAC originally and Genentech and Roche and the explosion there. Fast forward a little bit, we're now in the era of immuno oncology and cell therapy, 
which you know is having a profound impact in many cancers and has been game changing, obviously in the field of cutaneous melanoma. You know, metastatic melanoma was a death sentence almost, and and look at what IO therapy's done there even some of the CAR T and cell therapies now. So we've made incredible strides, but with that said, and I can unfortunately speak from personal experience, we haven't cured cancer and we've got a lot more work to do. So I think that speaks to the need for a, a wide range of therapeutic armamentarium that you can bring to bear on what is effectively abnormal cellular process of just unconstrained proliferation. And these tumors are tricky. They're constantly under evolutionary pressure to evolve and escape whatever you're trying to do to them. So that's sort of the context. And I'm super optimistic about what we're doing as a society and an industry. I think where does that then sort of bring in some of the background and what's changed is I think one of the seminal moments was sequencing of the human genome because subsequently the ability to actually do it at scale and reduce costs. And that's sort of a late 2000s, 2010, all of a sudden everyone's tumor and cancer is being sequenced and you're starting to identify all sorts of genes that are mutated and associating those back to very specific cancers. And I think what that highlighted was that there's other areas to be looking at beyond the conventional wisdom at the time. There's still a lot that is actually intracellular that's going on and specifically to your question, you know, gene expression. And I think the seminal insight, as it were, was the notion that a lot of these mutations are actually in biology around the regulation of gene expression, and hence where chromatin actually comes into the picture. Chromatin, again, being the compacted form of our DNA. You know, you take the ATGC, stack them in the head, you get about two meters or six feet, and you got to smush it all together, about a million, you know, million compression ratio to get into the nucleus of a cell. And it turns out that this set of biology that's regulating chromatin architecture and opening it up to allow the DNA to be transcribed is actually pretty fundamental in cells that are replicating. And when it's hijacked or mutated, boy, is that a bad thing. And, and that's sort of where the cancer insights come into play. And so that I think the genomic sequencing, the insights into this area of biology in the 2010 earlier part of the, the last decade really sort of changed view on another avenue, if you will, into cancer, but also actually into other areas of disease. And I know we'll talk a bit more about that. Wonderful. And so where is Foghorn now from a development perspective? How large is the team and what are you working on now? Yeah. So I had the privilege of working with about 165 or so other Foghorn colleagues. We've grown, when I joined, we're again, about 10 or 12 people had tremendous growth and scale. We are a clinical stage company now. So when I joined, I think we had a couple of targets, one of which, you know, I think on my first day, my now CSO, who was our head of drug discovery, and then came in and then day one and told me, yeah, I'm not sure we can drug this one. And we actually sidelined that project a few months later and took on other stuff. So we've got a pipeline of over 15 different programs. We've got a major, two major collaborations, one with our colleagues at Merck, another one with our colleagues at Loxo Lilly. We're advancing in phase one dose escalation studies in two tumor types. One of There's a third one, but we're on hold at this point in time. And then, as I mentioned, a rich pipeline going after a whole range of different cancers with clear genetic lesions, 
uh, that potentially impact upwards of half a million patients. That's the current disclosed pipeline. And we think that could be applicable to several million patients in the developed world. So really exciting times. As I say, every year is an important year. And this one is the same for us. We've got a tremendous amount of interesting things coming down the pike, as it were, in terms of new targets and new selective chemical matter. And it's still, even though I've been at it now, may will be about six years, it really feels like we're still at the beginning and just scratching the surface of what's possible. And it, it, it's been tremendously exciting to see that growth and see what was initially a dream and a possibility of drugging some of these previously undrugged targets has actually translated into many programs and actually into the clinic. And again, it's been a privilege to see that. And we're recording this in early part of 2023. And for the last two and a half years or so, we've been fundamentally the how we work in biotech and every other sector has changed. As you think about how Foghorn was operating pre-pandemic to where we are now, what's changed in terms of how you think about team building and culture, if anything? I think the fundamental principles and values, I would say, have not changed. For me, it's always been about how do you create a high-performing team? You have to deliver results. You have to have an impact. Our job is to make medicines. At the same time, how we do things really matters. I'm a huge believer in creating an environment that allows for innovation, allows people to be their authentic selves, creates, if one's familiar with the term, the psychologically safe environment where you can you can express your view and anyone in the company can come up to me as a CEO and say, hey, Edwin, I disagree with you. Here's a different idea. We should judge people on their intellectual thoughts and their creativity and their ideas. And frankly, not on anything else. It doesn't matter what their title is or any other demographic for that matter. And so that's been a really important principle, if you will, from the very first day I stepped through the door at Foghorn to today. I think what's changed specifically with COVID, what's changed with COVID is it's forced us to think more creatively about how we work in the sense of we don't all have to be in the office from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we can have colleagues literally sitting in different parts of the country. And we can give that flexibility to people to do what they need to do for their personal life. And you know, we've got a hybrid work policy. We do have to be, I would say, more purposeful about the team building and having those conversations because there is data that show that whether it's the office or wherever one meets, that connectivity is really important. And Zoom is great, but there's a lot that is lost. Those idiosyncratic interactions right after a meeting where you have a follow-up, it's just harder when one's just working remote. So we try and get people on campus with some frequency we provide a tremendous amount of flexibility, but we're very purposeful now in how we try and structure interactions, ensure that we've got the teams connecting and that from a leadership perspective, we're role modeling some of that. So that I think has been the biggest change, but the fundamental values, underlying principles of the company, how we treat people is really critical. We spend a tremendous amount of time thinking carefully about onboarding people and ensuring that they feel connected and that was certainly true when we were all sitting at home, other than our colleagues who were coming into the lab every day. And, and I think that's certainly been an important part as we continue to build the company. Yeah. And now there's been another shift over the last you know, several months in biotech. We're in the midst of a correction. 
And we've been seeing a lot of different companies having layoffs. I'm curious how the current environment is informing how you're approaching development, spend, operating models, and so on. I'd like to think that it hasn't changed the way that we run the company terribly much in the following way, which is capital is really hard to come by. And I think when one is the CEO or the CFO, I certainly feel every penny that is spent in some way, shape, or form. And not a complete exaggeration, but, and I'm a pretty cheap guy to begin with. So I think how one spends one's time and resources and money should always be top of mind for you know, CEO, CFO. I would say we have tried to be even more thoughtful in prioritization. I adopted the saying from George Sangos, George at Biogen, that said, there's no dabbling. You know, so if we're going to do something, we're going to run the experiment. We want to run the experiment to its conclusion. Otherwise, you're just wasting money. So we try and be really thoughtful on that front. We're certainly trying to be very careful, as we always have been, on hiring. A lot of time spent ensuring getting the right person into the company. It's not just about fit, but it's about add to the company. The non-negotiable for me is they have to share the value system. So those things have been consistent. I watched the macroeconomic side of it. We're watching the capital markets. And so we're trying to be really thoughtful about stuff. Maybe we're slightly more thoughtful than we have been, but not dramatically so. And we're just trying to ensure that we're focused on the right programs that can create value. And by that, it's what's going to help patients. And if we do that, then I'm confident that the investor side of it will sort of play through. So Adrian, you know, in, in biotech, as you well know, there's inherent risk in everything we do in drug development. And there's appropriate regulations in place to ensure patient safety and a number of other areas where regulations are required. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, given where biotech is right now, what's your perspective on how we thread that needle of continuing to push scientific innovation aggressively with the regulations and regulatory environment that we all need to operate in? I'll draw a distinction maybe between the regulatory environment and the political environment, and they're obviously interrelated. I did my graduate work at FDA when Dr. McClellan was the FDA commissioner and worked sort of out of the chief economist office there. And the FDA plays an incredibly critical role in ensuring the safety and the appropriate benefit risk for medicines. And I always think about this, again, as my dad was undergoing treatment and other families have had other needs for medicines, you want to know your family members getting something that is well understood, it's well characterized, it's safe. So no debate on the need for regulation. I think there's not just FDA regulation, but there's regulation now that I think is coming into play on the political dimension. We all wrestle with the healthcare system in the United States and drug pricing being one of those topics that obviously always comes up. And I think the challenge if I can take regulation in that dimension, you just take an example of the recent Inflation Reduction Act. Again, positive intentions as to trying to resolve drug pricing and ensuring that our senior citizens get medications and that things are affordable. But the unintended consequences of legislation where the complexities of the industry and the science are perhaps not as well understood or messaged is you can create some perverse incentives. So as an example, you know, negotiations kick in earlier for small molecules and biologics. And I think that can be challenging. It creates all sorts of perverse incentives then for companies to not maybe invest in science if they know that they're not going to be able to 
reap the investment down the road. And the beauty of the system we have that we have in the United States is we have patents, they're enforceable. They create a limited monopoly as they're intended to do. The drugs go generic. And I think we've got to be very careful that we don't strive for innovation. Again, positive intentions of trying to ensure that people get access to healthcare and medicines. But the tipping side of this is we can go too far and we can damage what has been an incredibly innovative and productive sector. Obviously, the debates will continue, but thank goodness for the biopharmaceutical industry. That's how we've been able to get out of the pandemic. And for people to want to take risks to go into a company, whereas most drugs, unfortunately, do not succeed and most things do not get approved to spend one's life working on stuff and then not be able to reward the people that took the risk. It may seem like it's extreme, but I don't think society sees all those failures and sees all the challenges. It's a hard thing to communicate to people, and especially when it's hitting them in the pocketbook in the pharmacy. So I think we've got to be really thoughtful and careful about the dialogue on regulation from the political side and what's expedient versus what's really important to generating new medicines, new breakthroughs in science. Yeah, certainly agree there, Adrian. Great point. To wrap up, if I could ask you to reflect for a minute, and given all of your experiences over the last several years, if you could take a step back and provide one piece of advice that you wish you could provide to your younger self, what would that be? Well, there's so much advice I'd like to give myself, but it was only one thing I would have to say is, be a little more patient. The one's career is nonlinear, and there's sometimes things that you don't maybe understand why or how this is going to help you in your career. And only, I think, in hindsight, you realize it's the culmination of the experiences and moves. So I think being patient, and I'll cheat a little bit in saying, be a bit more open-minded that there are experiences that even if they're hard or not exactly what you wanted to do in the totality of it, as long as you're focused in the long term, you're going to be in good shape and you're going to have a great career and you're going to have a great impact. So that would be the advice to myself and hopefully to anyone else who's out there listening, who's maybe where I was 20 years ago and a little impatient and ready to take on the world. Still have great ambition, but be a little patient. Great. Well, Adrian, on that note and that thoughtful advice, thanks for joining us today and wishing you and your colleagues, Corn, continued success. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.